Welcome to another episode of Disrupt. I'm Andrew Donlin, editor of Home Healthcare News. Today's episode is with John Kunish, the CEO of Intrepid USA. Intrepid USA is a large home health player that plans on becoming larger. In order to do that, it's looking for a new PE partner. John and I chat about that and the home health market overall in this conversation. Before we get into it though, a word from our sponsor. Home Care Home Base gives you the tools for detailed benchmarking and regular review of key performance indicators that can make or break your business. We make it easy to track your progress towards specific goals, and we help you stay on track to meet them. From changing CMS rules to complex value-based care, HCHB keeps you focused and prepared for whatever comes your way. Learn more about how we can help you meet your goals for 2022 and stay on track for long-term success. Visit hchb.com today. Okay, John, let's get started just with your background. would love to hear how you got to the point where you are now as uh, the CEO of Intrepid USA Healthcare Services. No, that's great, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be here, part of your podcast. You know, it, it, it's interesting. My, I've been in post-acute now four years, joined Intrepid back in April of 2018. And, and my background before that, you know, I've hauled all the trash of healthcare. I'm a reformed CPA and bean counter out of PricewaterhouseCoopers and KPMG. Started out in the West Coast, uh, went to undergrad at San Diego State, UCLA for graduate school, spent the first half of my career out West, came to Nashville in 1996 with one of the HCA alumni clubs doing revenue cycle services. So it was interesting. I kept bouncing around between revenue cycle, health information management, then got into kind of the more sexier side of healthcare on electronic health records and clinical physician order entry. I've probably spent more than half my career in cowboy boots and scrubs and pre-ops, ORs and PACUs and major health systems and academic medical centers in the United States. But I've always been talking about the family medical home and that ultimately we would return where it started back in the late 1800s, early 1900s to the home being the center of all healthcare. And so really, uh, when I got into post-acute, I love it because it's an incredibly highly important area in healthcare. And when the pandemic broke out, my friends in acute care called me and said, were you part of the Wuhan lab team? Because suddenly we're now apex predators in healthcare, whereas the acute care systems were driving all healthcare for the last 60 years. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so, yeah, give us more background into Intrepid, basically where you are now and maybe a little bit on if growth has intensified over the last couple of years. Yeah. So, you know, we're 17 states, primarily Ohio River Valleys, the Southeast, a few far-flung operations up in Minnesota, Washington, and Arizona, you know, some operations down in Texas. But we've really been, you know, it's a company with an incredible 53-year history. And we're frankly still one of the largest platform-type plays out there that has scale size operations. We have both home health care, hospice, and personal care, private duty services. So that's kind of unique about us as well, so that we can bring this continuum of care available. Now, we don't have all of that located in every market, but we have that potential for growth. So that's one of the things that I think makes us very attractive to potential suitors is, you know, when you, you know, we've talked about that, and I know that that's something we can kind of get into a little bit further down the road, but it's a great asset with a tremendous footprint in what I call the hills, hollers, bayous, backwoods, barrier islands, deserts, and prairies of the United States. We're sort of the, the flyover state home healthcare company. We're in a lot of these rural markets, Andrew, that 
give us incredible defensibility and relationship capital that's taken 20, 30, 40 years for some of these people to build up in their communities. You know, they're taking care of their elementary school teachers now. They're 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 little league and baseball and soccer coaches. It it's it's sort of interesting. It's 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 sort of like having 65 family businesses out there versus your typical 6,000 census, you know, couple thousand employee type company at our scale and size with a lot of passion and heart and, and local support from the communities. Yeah. So that that's unique about you in some ways. And also, like you said, your service mix makes you guys a little bit unique. Mm-hmm. Do you find that, especially over the last couple of years, as the way, you know, more outsiders view home-based care, that that has served you well, having that service mix and being able to say, you know, yeah, we offer home health, but we also offer the personal care and the hospice? It has. And I think the challenge for us as we look forward is to expand personal care. That's a very different mindset, as you know, from an operating model than the traditional skilled nursing type needs of home health care. And so we think in the long run, we're going to have to do probably an acquisition of some folks that really have their DNA is fundamentally home care, non-skilled, and that can scale with us across all of our geographies as we expand, because it's just a different operating model and mix, as you well know. Yeah, that makes total sense. And then so also relating to the pandemic, you know, HHCN, we wrote an article about something you guys were doing in terms of your referral sources to stay afloat during the pandemic. Can you explain what that was uh, and why you guys went that route? Yeah, one of the things we've really done is is look very closely at trying to stay close to our referral sources and and change the typical in-person, heavily face-to-face based model and using a lot more smarter technologies using things like like tap cloud which allows us to kind of do patient engagement and family engagement to stay close to our clients and our patients that are at home and their family members and also working with the referral sources differently on pulling together sort of different modalities of text email things that are less face to face communication and it's sort of interesting as you look at how people have adapted to that right it's you either are comfortable with with Zoom or you're comfortable with a disembodied voice or you're not. And, you know, Zoom at least does add, and you know, GoToMeeting and WebEx and Microsoft Teams. They do add at least the visual, you know, so you can at least see somebody's body language or at least their inflection. You have more of a sense of connection and commitment and conversation. But it's a challenge. And, and how do you operate in a virtual world? We spent a ton of time really learning how to coach people up on how to use these modalities. I was lucky in that I used to run patient contact centers and call centers in my career on the revenue cycle side. So for me, teaching people how to use the power of voice and the power of language and words, you have to have your personality come through. That's not natural for a lot of folks in healthcare because we're used to having that just intimate one-on-one personal connection with the patient at bedside or at the point of care. And so telemedicine, telehealth, things like this that are new modalities that really exploded with the pandemic, they've been here for five, 10 years, but weren't necessarily catching on because of, I think, uncomfortableness about adoption rates and people using a different modality, if that makes sense to you. No, absolutely. And ironically enough, 
uh, you and I, who both should be pretty uh, well-versed in that technology area, had trouble getting on to have this conversation in the first place about 10 minutes ago. Um, it happens. Technology, technology can be kludgy. Yes. And people get frustrated with it and they say, you know what? Restart your computer, huh? Restart the computer. It resets everything. Turn your iPhone off once a day. Yeah. Don't leave all the cookies out there because you have no idea what's going on. And people are like, oh man, that worked. Yep, glad it did. You know? No, definitely. So in terms of those, you know, referral patterns and engaging more with the community that you guys did uh, during that pandemic, have things shifted a little bit more? You know, obviously I know we've had a a recent surge because of the Omicron variant, but have things stabilized more and gone back to where you guys were in 2019 or have those kind of forever changed? You know, know, it's interesting. I think one of the things that we've seen is more recent, people were hesitant to start shutting down elective procedures again, but we're starting to see that come back. And, And just in our local, you know, I run a company headquartered out of Dallas, but I'm actually up on a family farm up here in, in the Tri-Cities, Kingsport area of Tennessee. So right where Virginia, North Carolina, and Tennessee and Kentucky kind of come together. And what's interesting is our local school literally is closing. The district is closing for two days because of lack of staffing due to Omicron. So, so what we're seeing is some pretty weird shutdown effects in physician offices lately. They're closing sometimes for a week because their entire nursing or clinical or back office team is out. So they're like, we're shut down for this week. What? No, we're not seeing any patients. Don't have any referrals for you. We're not shutting us out, but they're shutting down. So it's it's been an interesting, that's a new phenomena and effect that we've seen that was a little different than it was back in the peaks back in say, you know, spring of 2000, that summer where people were kind of getting hit with the waves of the initial COVID came through. I think the other thing that we're seeing that's a little different this time is just the overall staff burnout and anxiety, not just on our side, but within the healthcare system. The system's exhausted. You know, you've you've heard about the great resignation. 35% of nurses are no longer feeling job satisfaction that's enough to keep them in the profession of healthcare because they're just burnt out. Those are horrible statistics for us when you think about the labor shortage demands that we all know are out there just because the changing demographics, let alone what's happening with workforce engagement for clinicians, which, which is where we've been spending a lot of our time really trying to focus in on how do we make this job more fun and more fulfilling. No, I think it's a great point. I think, you know, through the stages of, of this pandemic, even when it's got better from a death standpoint or just the severity of the disease, it still affects the industry in, in different ways that we may not have been expecting. So I think that's a, that's a great point and something worth mentioning. Yeah. That was a little grim, but, you know, let's look forward to uh, the future and the good things that I'm sure you believe are coming for Intrepid. You guys seem to be looking for a new PE partner, a private equity that is. Why are you currently doing that? And then also, how does that process work, John? Well, when you look at it, I mean, we've been held by our existing private equity firm, which is a family office for 15 years now. And, you know, that that investment life cycle is is long due for a change. This is a industry that requires a tremendous amount of capital to invest in it. And so we're working with Ziegler and company on going through an investment banking process it's a very robust process being conducted kind of across the board. So there's every kind of 
investor you can imagine that's excited about this platform coming to market, whether it's the strategics that are looking for expanding their additional market density, whether it is financial sponsors that already have assets or financial sponsors that are looking at us as a platform play. All of those are attractive and and we're pretty excited about going through this process because we feel at the end of it, we'll end up with a good partner to provide for sort of that next 50 years of growth. It's interesting because one of the things, you know, Andrew, I've talked to some of your folks before about the way the industry has traditionally consolidated and grown up. Everything's been always based upon, you know, census and EBITDA. What we're really seeing in the marketplace is we look at the the four or $500 million worth of acquisitions that are out there that we know of and that we're tracking, these aren't companies that have to sell. They're second or third generation owners. They're running very successful companies that they want people that are interested more and in the sort of the, the heritage and heart of their companies versus just their census and EBITDA. So when they think about who they want to sell to, they don't want to just sell sell out for the maximum dollar. They want to continue that family's legacy and see how that's going to change in the future. And that's kind of one of the things that's unique. When you look at my background, I've been doing owner-managed companies for most of my healthcare career. And and even in the roll-ups that I've done in other industries, we were always buying owner-managed companies. And that was one of the unique things that I liked about it is these people They spent their entire lives building this business over 20, 30, 40 years. And now they're thinking about how do they monetize that? They really care about what you're going to do with the asset once you own it. And and that's, I think, one of our unique competitive strengths that we can bring to the M&A arena with the right financial sponsor and the right sponsor going forward that's different than our traditional model in our industry, which was get your company, add a little a little segment to it, do one or two acquisitions, and then flip it to one of the big players. Yeah, it sounds like that will be an exciting process, especially if you guys have, you know, a relatively open mind about who your next partner is going to be, which it sounds like you do. Absolutely. Yep. But also, so you've been with a private equity partner, like you said, for a long time and could be with a new one here shortly. What is your take overall, John, on, you know, private equity being in the industry and, and how it affects things at a larger scale? I, I think private equity is critical to healthcare in general. You know, it's a very capital intensive business. You've got to be constantly investing in new technologies and, and new new modalities to stay current and, and to keep kind of advancing not only what your efficiencies are, but your speed of execution, right? You know, a lot of people, when they look at technologies, they talk about a return on investment. I look at a return on time because our clinicians cannot get any more time. So I'm very jealous when I look at technology, because a lot of times when you put deploy technology into healthcare, it actually takes more time to use it. That's not a positive, right? So we're, we're looking at all kinds of things that provide more automated notes, ability for them to do prompted care checklists that do a better job at creating better, higher quality clinical documentation and do it faster for clinicians different ways to allow them to communicate with family members. Because one of the things that's different about post-acute, Andrew, that was very different than the physician practice world or the acute care world is the labeled patient in the hospital is your patient, right? What happens is, is when you get into, you know, seniors that are aging in place, they sometimes don't tell you the truth and the spouse 
or their partners may not necessarily tell you the truth either because they're covering for them. So you have to be able to integrate multiple input from multiple sources to truly get a clinical picture of what's really going on with that patient. And that's unusual. That That is very strange. And also the other thing that stood out for me when I got into post-acute was your lack of control over your physical care setting. You know, you're in the homes. You're not in a nice, clean pre-op or PACU or operating room setting where everybody kind of comes to you and fits into your model. You've got to go out and fit into what you're finding in these home environments. So that that's something different that's different. But back to your original question about the PE involvement, it's critical because they bring sort of tremendous amounts of capital to bear. The one thing I think, the cautionary side, right? And I touched on that when we had that last question a couple minutes ago, is the modality and their mindset, right? Are, are they, when people are considering a right PE for our partner for them, the, especially these owner-managed firms, are they going to be partnering with, with somebody that's really going to be growing the business over time, continuing what they built, or are they kind of going to say, no, nah, we just want to grab control of the asset and rip it and flip it? You know, and, and that's one of the things that I think the PE firms that have a longer term view on the industry are going to do well. You will certainly have the PE firms that can come in and do short term acquisitions, maybe do, you know, a little bit of growth and then flip it. They're going to do fine too, but it requires probably both to effectively consolidate our industry, but it's still highly fragmented with tremendous room for growth. But as you well know, technology investments are going to drive this because we have to drive tremendous efficiencies and find ways that create better resource utilization and leveraging these very scarce nursing resources that we have in place. And private equity drives growth. And that's what you guys obviously want to continue to do as you find a new partner. Yep. So in terms of, you said earlier that you, you wanted to co-locate as many of those service lines as possible. First of all, how, how do you plan to grow personal care a little bit more? Because I think that's one of your guys' goals. Correct me if I'm wrong. But, and also, do you have any markets in mind that you want to co-locate in specifically? Yeah, there, you know, when, when you look at where we are, I think it's getting higher density in our existing footprint, right? And what we look at is we have a built-in growth opportunity to co-locate hospice with all of our existing home health operations. So that kind of creates sort of a, a unique opportunity for us there. Personal care, as I shared with you, that's something that we're going to probably have to wait till we finish our recapitalization process and go through that sale process with Ziegler so that we can determine what's the right way to expand those service offerings across our footprint. And I think that that's going to require probably a pretty significant acquisition to, again, get the operational scale and and the team on board that knows how to manage those staffing issues and things that are a little more different there. I think the biggest thing for 2022 for us is just to continue to weather through the, the COVID morass that we've all been navigating through for two years now, and then to complete our sale process so that we can then see what's the path going forward into 2023. You know, and, and I, it'll be fun to see how this works out this year, not only for our industry, but for us personally, and I'm sure we'll stay close to you on that and, and probably have a better sense of geography-wise towards the tail end of this year as to where exactly where we're, we're growing and locating. But I'd say, if you look at our existing footprint and map, probably greater density where we are versus necessarily expanding geography too much 
across the United States initially. And is there anything else, John, from a technology perspective that you guys are really going to be honing in on? Yeah, I think resource management and scheduling. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, the industry's sort of been very traditional in the way in which it's scheduled and people do it because that's what they do. You know, before PDGM, we were scheduling, you know, 12 PT, eight skilled nursing and four occupational therapy visits. Post-PDGM, people are scheduling eight PT, eight skilled nursing, and four occupational therapy visits. Why? You know, you, you've got the OASIS start of care assessments. There needs to be much more effective resource loading and balancing with the growth of Medicare Advantage plans that, that really push you to have LPN and LVN type nursing resources versus RN resources wherever you can. You've got to be able to figure out what kind of a nursing visit is it? And as you get more medically complex patients at home, you've got to figure out how do you invest in different kinds of technologies, wound care technologies, patient monitoring technologies that are in the home-based. What of your patient populations need those kinds of things versus deploying it an ICU level of home monitoring across your entire population when only 8 to 10% of your patients really need it? So, so I think the technology that drives better efficiency of labor and better effectiveness of scheduling things for the staff and patients, you know, it's kind of like, think about the airline industry, right? You know, the ability for them to go in and select their routes or their flights or things that they want to do. We need to have similar things like that on home healthcare. And I've been talking about this for a long time, Andrew, the ability for us to align people's interests. You know, we've had physician preference cards in the operating rooms of acute care hospitals for 40 years. We don't have preference cards in home health care. So we send people that are allergic to cats into homes with cats. We send people that are petrified of dogs into homes with dogs. That shouldn't happen and it doesn't need to happen, but your staffing and scheduling models and technology that helps you do this has to track those preferences. But we also think that's a strategic opportunity or some of the technology players to up their game and to allow us to track things that are kind of unique. I mean, even down to the level of where they start looking at their backgrounds, right? Wouldn't it be cool if somebody that has a military background was able to care for somebody that was a pretty senior member of the military, like Colin Powell or Norman Schwarzkopf? That would be a fulfilling job assignment for me. Or if I was a musical theater person, if, I, if I'm taking care of Julie Andrews or Robert Goulet, that'd be pretty cool. Or if I'm a film person, I'm taking care of Steven Spielberg or George Lucas. Now I, I'm really excited about my job in home care and home health or hospice that's very different than it's just a, it's just a nurse, it's just a patient. Does that make sense to you when I kind of talk about how that changing our job, that it's not just the clinical care but the aspects of our personality and our interests that can align patients up with better care providers. Absolutely. And I think it probably goes both ways too. You know, if there's someone with a military background helping out a more senior member uh, uh, of the military, uh, I think both of them are going to get more out of that relationship or visit. Yeah. Okay, John, finally, and then I'll let you go here. uh, My final question is, what's a general industry prediction you have for 2022 or beyond and be as bold as you please here. So this is interesting. I I have been talking about the family medical home for probably 20 to 25 years since I first heard about it because it was developed 
by the United States Navy up in Bethesda, Maryland. And I went to the American College of Healthcare Executive Conference in Chicago, and I met the commander who had developed it. And it was a late conference. No one was there. And I said to this guy, I go, can I take you and buy you drinks and dinner and just have you tell me what you're doing? Because they were incorporating all kinds of non-traditional medical type models into it with massage, holistic medicine, acupuncture, you know, kind of family groups, sending patients home really early postoperatively. And so what I realized back then is, and I started talking about the home is the center of all care. And I think what we're going to see over the next three years is a continued decline of the acute care health system directing the dollar spend of healthcare, and it'll be coming more to home health and home care as the place in which payers work with patients to get home care. And they all know that it's safer, more efficient, and more effective. That's going to be the driver. So home health care suddenly versus acute care, because you remember when our industry started in 1965, right? You couldn't get home health care unless it was following a three-day hospital stay. Mm -hmm. That was what drove our industry for years. Right now, I, I'm hoping in the next five years, you're not, you're not going to be having an acute care episode unless it's an emergent situation or your home health provider is referring you to an acute care facility for an assessment. That's a very radical shift in our medical model, but I think it's one that is going to be driven by patient preferences to be in their homes because most patients do not want to go to an acute care facility because that is where all the COVID is. That where is all the diseases. That's where they get the hospital-acquired infections because they're not recovering quickly in the safety of their own home with their pets and their loved ones and their family members around because they'll sleep better, they'll recover better, they'll have better outcomes. This is something that's different, I think. You know, I, I think 2022 is going to be a continued year of navigating the COVID nightmare. I think 2022, 2023 is going to be how do we start addressing the staffing shortage that is here permanent and going to stay so that becomes better resource utilization? And then beyond that, how do we position home health care where it really needs to be to be a dominant player in deciding the spend and what has to occur for patients in terms of their investment in care and what they truly need versus just allowing them to get sick, go into the acute care hospital and have a five to 10 day stay. That, that's just not an efficient model for healthcare. All right, John. Well, thank you so much. I, I wish you guys the best of luck in the future. And thank you for coming on an episode of Disrupt. I appreciate it. Oh, it's always a pleasure. Listen, anytime and, and good luck. You guys do great work at HHCN and we just love being part of the industry and part of your team. All right. Thank you, John. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to another episode of Disrupt. For more news and insights on the home health, home care, and hospice industries, subscribe to our daily or weekly newsletters at homehealthcarenews.com or consider becoming an HHCM Plus member. I'm Andrew Donlin, and this has been a production of Asian Meat Network, Chicago, Illinois.